Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Good? It's good to see you. Um, if I've not met you yet, my, oh yeah, hey. Okay, so it might, it might look like we shop at the same place. But I'm totally fine with that. I'm not insecure at all. I said, bro, we even have the same pants on. <laughs> Thanks, Wes. Um, and my, my name is Luke, if I've not met you yet. And it's good to see you. If you have a Bible, you've brought it with you. Turn to Acts 21 as we continue our work through the book of Acts, uh, a series that we've started several, I mean, probably 20-something weeks ago called Jesus' People. Because we believe that the book of Acts is really a story about the act of Jesus through his people as he starts the young church. It's been very helpful for us. And I think today's passage, peculiar as it is, I think is going to help us a lot. It's going to help us see Jesus more clearly. And therefore, I think it's going to help us see ourselves more clearly. And while you're turning there, have you ever noticed how hard it is to make hard decisions? Hard decisions are hard. And that's why they're hard, right? Because they're just hard. That's why they find themselves at the end of your to-do list. If you keep a to-do list, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't keep a to-do list, that's a different sermon altogether, right? But a a to-do list usually has floating to the top of it a number of things that are easy, maybe demanding, maybe even things you like to do that's easy to check off and make you feel like you're accomplishing something. But what always filters down to the bottom of a to-do list? Those things requiring very hard decision-making, right? Right? I'm not alone, am I? Right. That's why you always hear the phrase, I want to sleep on that decision, which is a common one for me. What that is supposed to mean is, is I might have a fresh perspective in the morning, therefore I will not make such decision today. But what it means when I say it is, my brain hurts, not really wanting to deal with that right now. So in football terms, because it is Sunday, I'm going to punt the football way down the field, and maybe before it gets back to me, the decision makes itself. That's what it means for me to say, I want to sleep on it. Every single one of you, I would be willing to bet right now has a hard decision you're needing to make. I mean, that wasn't hard to think of, was it? It came right to your mind, didn't it? Hard decisions, ones that you've been putting off. Maybe they've been coming behind you like a cloud when you wake up in the morning. And I think what happens is is we think that by becoming a Christian, our hard decisions become less hard. I would like to submit that being a Christian and one who loves Jesus makes hard decision making even harder. Because before Jesus, when we are far from Jesus and our affections aren't aimed at him, we have a compass that helps us make decisions. But instead of north, east, south, and west, it's me, 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 and me. So when we come to a hard decision where we can go right or we could go left, really the ultimate question is, is what does this mean for me? That's pretty easy. But whenever you love Jesus and your affections are aimed at Christ and what he has done for us, Well, then God finds himself on the compass, and therefore hard decisions become even more hard. What is God's will for me in this decision? What would God will me to do? And and listen, I'm not really going to teach much on God's will and deciphering what that is, but if you go back to August, early August, I believe the 2nd of August, in fact, we have a link to this sermon um, on the weekly, which is on our website. You can go there and check it out. That, that whole sermon is based on how to make decisions based on God's will. And what does that mean? And is it something you wait for before you make a decision? I think the name of the sermon is, is Jesus' people make good decisions. We're not going to talk about that today as much, though. Because I think there are a couple other 
real plain reasons that making hard decisions is hard, and this text is really going to lead us well in those. One, one thing I think about hard decisions is they become very difficult for us because we have a hard time reconciling different voices around us. We have a lot of counselors, a lot of opinions on what we should do, and a lot of times they conflict. They slam into each other, and we don't know which one to listen to. We don't know how to reconcile all these voices of people that earnestly love us and have a concern or a regard for us, right? Proverbs fifteen twenty two. It's a really cool proverb. It says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Hear me. This is only true if you have good counselors around you. Choose your counselors well. If you ask me what I think you should do with your marriage or how to lead yourself or discipline your kids, or you might get a different perspective than your weird Uncle Al, right? In fact, me and weird Uncle Al might only agree on 1% of things. So if you surround yourself with a cloud of people that are all saying different things at different times for different reasons, then maybe your plans won't be so easy. Maybe they will be frustrated even though you do have a lot of people around you. I think another reason hard decisions can be hard for us is because we know what the consequences will be ahead of time. You know what I mean. You know the right decision to make, but you also know the consequences that are going to greet you once you've made that decision. I know what I need to do right here, but I know as soon as I make this decision, my life gets 38% more uncomfortable. Not about that. Not about any of that. In fact, not just you, not, not, not only are you able to see that, all the people around you are able to see what the consequences will do to you. That's why they're trying to persuade you away from it. Because they love you. And they're concerned for you. And they have a regard for you. And they see the consequences just like you. So today I'd like to look at how Jesus' people make hard decisions because we do this differently than the world does. Paul, I think, is really going to help us well here because we catch him at a very tender moment. There's a lot of deep emotion in this passage. The whole book of Acts, or at least where Paul became a Christian and started his work in church planting, we see mankind trying to break Paul, break his body. I mean, literally break his body, break his bones, break his friendships, break his relationships, break his fellowship, break his spirit. But today, we finally see mankind break him. They break his heart. So let's look at Acts 21, verse 1. Really, really interesting passage. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Key phrase here. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and they said farewell to one another. Now, here's an interesting passage. Because there's a lot of emotion in here. It's buried in here. But what I wonder, why does it say through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem? As if it was revealed by the Holy Spirit. 
did not the Holy Spirit tell them that Paul wasn't supposed to go? Is, is that what's going on? Because earlier we see the Holy Spirit telling Paul to go. In fact, if you look back, and don't flip back unless you have your, your Bible open and easy, but back in Acts 19, what we talked about maybe a few weeks ago, it says, now after these events, in verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, resolved in the Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And last week, Chris read a scripture to us, and it says, and now behold, in, in chapter 20, verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. That word constrained in the Greek means chained or shackled. He's resolved. He's chained. He's shackled. He is set. He is going. So what do we have? We have the Christians at Tyre who love Paul who are concerned, have a high regard for Paul, they see something, whether they heard it in a prophecy or saw it in a vision, something through the Spirit, the text says, they understood what was going to happen to Paul. And their heart was to say, don't go. Don't go. We have an understanding through the Spirit what is going to happen to you, and our message to you is to just don't go. Stay with us. They didn't see persecution being a very good option. And I don't blame them for this right here. If I was to have a dream or a vision that something horrendous was going to happen to one of you on a road trip possibly that you were going to take the next day or the next week, I would do everything in my power to talk you out of it. I'd try to grab you and try to compel you and say, please don't go. Please don't go. So what do we have? Is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Because that's what it looks like at just a cursory glance. The answer is no. He was showing them the same thing, but both parties were taking something different out of the occasion, right? Because if you look at verse 22 off of Acts 20, and we were to keep going all the way to verse 23, it says this, that the Holy Spirit is testifying to Paul that in every city, he says, imprisonment and afflictions await him. I think that's the same thing the people saw, that there's imprisonment waiting, there's affliction waiting. And their response is to say, don't go, don't do it. But this is what his response is. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. They're seeing the same thing, but they're hearing two different things, if that makes any sense. By the way, as a side note, just as I look at this now, isn't it easy to hear the Lord for somebody else? Isn't it easy to do that? To just look and know what they should be doing with their life? I mean, listen, I can't get heads or tails on some of the hard decisions I need to make for my own life. Realistically, I've got some hard decisions I've got to make. I don't know north or south. I don't know what to do a lot of times. But all I need to do is hear a small chunk of your big situation, and I'll know exactly what to do. I'll become this brilliant expert on what you should do. Have you ever been in that position where you hear about someone else's life and their decision, and you sit back and you think, well, I know what to do. I mean, if they'd only ask me, I could tell them exactly how to make this hard decision. We should be careful there, shouldn't we? Anyway, it's a different sermon. But if we keep going on in the text that we have today, verse 6. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So the people that prayed with them on the beach with their families, they left the beach. They went on board the ship. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. 
On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Pause right there. This is cool. This is cool. Because this is the same Philip the Evangelist that 20 years earlier evangelized an Ethiopian eunuch. We taught on this. This was back in chapter 8, I think. Right? So he sees an Ethiopian eunuch reading the Old Testament. He shows up. He evangelizes him and shows him Jesus through that Old Testament text. The guy gets radically saved. He baptizes him. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit carried him away to a city called Azotus, where he went from there preaching from city to city to city until he lands at Caesarea. And here he is 20 years later. Paul finds him. Obviously, he started a family. He's got four daughters now, right? So pray for him. Four daughters, right? I love my daughters. I have two. He has four. We need to pray for this guy, right? Because they're gifted, and that freaks dudes out. We get insecure when we get around gifted women like that, right? And they're unmarried. He has four weddings to pay for. So pray for this guy. But what I love about this passage is that he's still at it. 20 years later, he's still at it probably an elder or a deacon in the local church, teaching his kids, nurturing the gifts that God has given his own children. I love this. He did not retire from missionary activity, but he is still building the church. Verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. Okay. All right. Listen, old school rule from when I was growing up, you don't ever touch another dude's clothing. Don't touch his hat. Don't touch his Nikes. Don't touch anything, right? Let's not cruise past this and forget how odd this looks. This is strange, right? If I was up here, here's Garrett, right? Garrett, you have a belt on, don't you? Let me see it. You better. It's a fashion statement, brother. If you have a shirt tucked into your pants, you've got to have a belt on. Do you have a belt on? Okay, I won't make you come up here. I know you're freaking out right now. But let's say he was up here. And I reached over and took his belt off. That would be bizarre. You would think, whoa, 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 what's he doing? What's he doing? Now, if I was to put it on myself and say, hey, I got your belt on, what do you think of that? Well, that's just junior high, but it's still weird, right? But what if I took his belt and did what this said? I would either need help or I'd have to sit down on the ground. I would have to take the time to somehow chain my hands to my feet with his belt, breaking all rules. If there was a conversation going on in that room, it stopped. This is crazy, and it is bizarre, and he did it. And when he did this, and I'm sure it had everyone's attention, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, what on earth is going on here? What we're seeing is supernatural guidance through prophecy. God through a prophetic gift that is in Agabus, is guiding, encouraging, and communicating with Paul and the people around Paul. This typically is a really good place to talk on prophecy because we see the daughters of Philip and we see what Agabus is doing here. I'm not going to take the time to do this today, even though it is a great time to do it. It is a different sermon. But if you go on the weekly, like I said, we have a link It goes back to a series that we did on spiritual gifts, and we taught it and soaked in it thoroughly, all of the spiritual gifts. So if you're curious about that, go on the weekly or just go onto the website and go to our series on spiritual gifts. But what I want to go back to is how Paul looked at this. 
Paul's watching his belt around this guy, and he's hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying. He's not hearing it as a prohibition, though. He's hearing it as a warning for him to get his heart ready. Not hearing it as a prohibition. That's how everyone else is seeing it, though. Everyone else is seeing this thing happening with Agabus, and they're not saying, look how good God is. He's telling him to get his heart ready and to be strong in this time of decision-making. Let's look and see what they say. Verse 12. When we heard this, we see the word we because now Luke is involved in this, the author of this book, all right? So he's switching gears. He's putting himself in there. And Luke is a guy who's done about 20 years of life with Paul at this time. They've bled a bit together. They've planted some churches and traveled and done life on life. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Again, we see this. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not ready only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I barely mentioned this last week, but what you see in the tail end of the book of Acts is kind of a similar track that we see at the tail end of the Gospels, where you see Jesus heading towards Jerusalem with people trying to talk him out of it while he predicts his own death. And we're seeing the same exact thing with Paul, the same exact thing. If you look at 951 and don't, we'll put it up on the screen. It says this about Jesus when Jesus was in the same approximate place. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, set his face, resolved, constrained, unflappable, ready to go. You're not going to talk him out of it. Why? Because God had made very clear what he was to do in this hard decision. Verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, that's the text. This is the big idea. The big idea for us today is that Jesus' people make hard decisions with broken hearts. With broken hearts. I'm going to explain. Like Paul, hard decisions are going to come hard for us. And that is because we see in our hard decisions consequences that are coming our way. And A, we don't want to deal with the consequences. And B, our heart's broken because we want to listen so much to all the voices around us telling us to avoid the pain. Avoid the consequences, even though we know we are supposed to make that decision. You see, our hearts want to make a decision to follow after what the Lord is showing us. But then our heart also wants to avoid the pain, and therefore we're brokenhearted. And then you throw in the factor of people that love us around us telling us, you don't have to do this. Maybe you did hear from the Lord, but you don't have to do this. We understand you love Jesus right now, but you don't have to do this. We understand that you've been praying and you heard and you fasted, but you don't have to do this. It breaks our hearts. Before Paul was able to lead with a broken heart, he had a king show him how to do it. We see Jesus. In Luke 22, verse 42, we see a beautiful passage. Jesus speaking to the father whom he loved. He says, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus made hard decisions, knowing what the consequences would be before him, yet he did them for the glory of his Father whom he loved. Not only that, he had people around him telling him, you don't need to do this. And Paul could see that in his life too. If you were to go back 20 years from this conversation between Jesus and his father, you see a conversation between Jesus and Peter. He sees this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on that third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And this is what Peter's saying to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why did he call him Satan there? This sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? But if you think, think just a minute, he did have an altercation with Satan. Jesus did. A temptation where Satan told him, listen, if you just bow to me, I'll give you your messiahship. You could be king. Look at all these kingdoms. You can avoid the cross, you can avoid the pain, you can avoid the consequences. That's what Peter's doing right here. Jesus, you can get it all without dying. All this talk about dying all the time. This talk about going and being persecuted and this and that. You don't have to do this. Look at what you've stirred up. This could carry. Why do you just insist on there being something bad, the consequences? You don't have to do them. He sounded a little bit like the same thing that Satan had said. I think the biggest fear I have in hard decisions, to be totally honest, is that I will suffer. I'll suffer. I'll suffer. Because I live for a king, King Jesus, and yet my heart still wants to be king myself. And therefore, I have a hard decision. I want to be king, yet I'm serving a king. See, the old creation before Jesus makes decisions primarily on the selfish heart. But the new creation, those close to Jesus, we make decisions that might even break our own hearts. The old creation away from Jesus, we make decisions or we used to make decisions based on what would bring personal benefits. But when we are close to Jesus, a new creation makes hard decisions regardless of personal benefits. That is the big idea. Jesus' people will make hard decisions with broken hearts, just like Paul, just like Jesus. I like to talk about how that looks and just unpack it and break it down for you just a little bit, okay? See if we can build some application in this. I think sometimes we make decisions with broken hearts because there are others who love us and try to persuade us in the opposite direction. Okay? I've never made, ever, a significant, life-altering decision without a long line of people telling me I'm making the wrong one. It's never happened. When it comes to hard decisions, I have always heard, you're making the wrong move. Luke, you're going to screw everything up. Luke, when you're over this fad, you're going to regret that you did this. I remember dropping out of medical school right when I got accepted. I didn't even wait for the first class. I got the letter that I worked my whole life for, and I sent another letter right on back saying, hey, thanks for accepting me, but, but no thanks. I've changed my mind. I'm going to instead 
go and raise money by asking people to finance me as a campus minister, right? And I remember sitting there with my parents going, what are you doing? You're doing the wrong thing. The ministry, do you know how poor you'll be for the rest of your life? You're screwing everything up. You'll get over this phase. And we're fearful that by the time you realize it, it'll be too late. Don't screw everything up. When I made that decision, I did not have one single person telling me I was doing the right thing. Everyone I knew, advisors, friends, family, everyone I knew said, Luke, you're going the wrong way. Planting this church, (laughs) another long line of people. When we planted our second church, I kid you not, there was a prayer chain set up to pray against us moving to plant that second church. A prayer chain against the Great Commission. No kidding, that really happened. Long line of people. You think that's going to be different for you? It's not going to be different for you. It breaks our hearts to hear those who love us and are concerned for us persuade us away from what we know we are supposed to do to honor God and His direction in our life. And I really believe that there are some of you right now in this morning that have very hard decisions, but you're a little bit fearful of how silly it might look to others. Dumb. Dangerous. And you just know ahead of time they're going to try to talk you out of it. This is what Paul was feeling, I think. This is what Jesus had to experience. Here's a big question, though. At what point, at what point do you ignore what those around you were saying and press forward anyway? Now, here I have to be careful. Okay, so hear me clearly to avoid an email later on from you, all right? At what point do you ignore communal advice? Because we are very big. This is important for us at Legacy because we're really big on communal input. Communal input. And what I mean by that, and I have to explain it, because it's a very anti-Western thought. It's a very anti-American thought that the decisions you make when you are partnered with a body of God, actually ripple beyond you and affect other people. Therefore, it's responsible when you're connected to the body of God to possibly carry this decision to those that you do life with and get some good input, right? It's not the way we are brought up. It's one of my biggest pet peeves is when the people of God get amnesia and they forget that they're connected to a greater body. Oh, yeah, 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 I know I'm a foot, I'm a hand, I'm an arm to the body of God. But when I make this decision, it's all about me. It's me. And all of a sudden, they're a dismembered part of the body. It's not true. I've heard people say things like, Luke, it's my life. I don't need to resource you. I could do whatever I want. True statement, they can. And a lot of times they do. It's very American of them. It's very Bon Jovi of them, right? I love Bon Jovi. It's a little bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. He has these lyrics in the later part of his life, a song called It's My Life, which actually is pretty catchy, right? Here's the lyrics for the chorus. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't gonna live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. My heart is an open highway. I don't know what that means. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. Well said. Christianity, the exact opposite right? Now he's Bon Jovi. I don't think he's really shaping culture now like he did way back in the day. But is this not in the DNA of all of us when we enter the body? I have profited well from carrying big, hard decisions to other people. 
and saying, what do you think? Can you give me perspective on this? I think I know what I need to do, but I know how I am too, right? I've profited well. But at what point, at what point do you say, I hear you giving me advice, but I'm going to do it anyway? That's a tough question, isn't it? I'm going to break it down and give you a couple application points, and I'm going to move on. You may be, underline maybe, you may be, possibly should decide against voices around you in consultation when you know that you have heard a distinct call from God to make a decision and it does not disagree with Scripture and it does not look foolish according to the way that the Bible says is foolish. You might be able to do it then. Might. You know, we have a couple examples of this. You know, if we, if we, and I have had this in the last 20 years, people come to me and say, hey, I'm going to divorce my wife. It's a hard decision. I've wrestled over this decision. But I feel like the Lord is leading me to do this. I feel like the Lord is leading me to leave and divorce my wife. Now, do we honor that? No, because it doesn't even line up. It's both foolish and a sin. It's, it's not beautiful according to the scripture. So we, we say, friend, I don't think God is leading you to do that right now. That doesn't make sense. But if someone were to come to me and say, hey, Luke, I'm feeling led by God to quit my job and start a, I don't know, computer programmers for Jesus ministry or rollerbladers for Jesus ministry, you know, because there's like six of them out there, I'm sure, you know, but they need Jesus. So I'm going to quit my job and go raise money and, and start a rollerbladers for Jesus. Now we might look at him and go, okay, bro, can you exp- just explain to me how the Lord spoke to you that word? I mean, how did you get that? Have you thought through this? We might push back, but is it a sin? No, most likely not. Is it foolish? Pfft, listen, I've seen riskier things done. I've seen riskier things done. A statistic I always throw out there with people, I love it, is that statistically, it's more successful to start a Chick-fil-A than it is a church. Statistically. There are riskier things than this. But does risky mean don't do it? No. We have to be careful. I think another time that we might be able to say, I hear you, but I'm not really going to listen to that, is when you know that the people speaking to you are only considering you. Their love and their regard for you is so deep, they're not even concerned about what God might be doing in that moment. That is off out there. They are ruled by their emotions for you. They are ruled by their love and concern for you. When you see that, you might be able to disregard some of that. Might. Maybe. I'm going to underscore that again. This is why you have to be careful with the counselors that you put around you. Listen, be careful with this. I've heard some people make some really bad decisions. And when I find out where they got their counsel for it, listen, you might as well have got it from a potted plant. I've heard people say things and they're like, well, I'm like, where did you get that? Well, my neighbor told me that they thought your neighbor, who, who is your neighbor? You know, or my lost uncle Al thinks that I'm crazy for not leaving this woman or be careful with your counselors. Proverbs is true. Be wise with that. Surround yourself with good people who will help you with this, or you will, you will make dumb decisions. Okay? Now let me reverse it for a little bit. Don't let your concern or regard or love for other people trump what God might be doing in their life. This is a big thing for me, too. I want to jump in and save people because I love people and have a high regard for people. I have to pause sometimes and say, could God be doing this, though? Could God be directing them? They might suffer. Might be a wrong decision according to the way the world looks. And they might grow. And the whole thing might have been set up 
by God the whole time. Be careful. This will be hardest with our kids, by the way, right? If my daughters come up to me someday and say, hey, daddy, I've got this eye for this guy. I think we're going to start dating. That's another sermon. But I think that's going to happen. And he's a church planner. <laughs> I'd be like, listen, <laughs> I'm going to sit down with this boy and talk. I don't know if I want you mixed up in that. It's hard. It's gut-wrenching. I don't know. All right? Our, our concern is a lot for our kids. We, we put our kids out there. I experience this with my own parents. That will be our hardest is with our own kids. Not only is conflicting voices a difficulty, but we make decisions with broken hearts whenever we know that the consequences will be difficult for us. We know what they will be. Paul says that he's going to Jerusalem not even knowing what will happen to him there. But the Holy Spirit did testify to him in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await him. Listen, I don't, what he's saying is this, I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be awesome. I'm pretty sure something, I don't know if they're going to beat me with rods or huck rocks at me. I don't know what the prison's going to look like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a, a bad situation. That's what he's saying right here. He knows the consequences, but yet he followed a king who also knew the consequences. This is what Oswald Chambers says about this. It's very helpful. He says, choosing to suffer means that there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> must be something wrong with you. But choosing God's will, even if it means you will suffer, is something very different. No normal, healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He simply chooses God's will, just as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. No saint should ever dare to interfere with the lesson of suffering being taught in another saint's life. You have to be able to recognize that first, right? You know, the Christian life, it's all about picking up a cross, isn't it? On a daily basis, picking up a cross means that there's consequences. There's pain. There's sacrifice. There's suffering. We know this. If you look at what Jesus says in Matthew, I'm going to go back to that passage. This is right after. This is important that you know where this is at. This is right after Peter tried to talk him out of this. Peter's trying to talk him out of suffering, and this is his very next train of thought. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is this not the very bones to what makes a hard decision? We just want to save our lives. I don't want to suffer. I want to save my life. And therein I begin to lose it, don't I? I put down the cross and I pick up my own kingdom. I want to save my life. And therefore, it's a hard decision a lot of times. Remember, our biggest fear is that we will suffer. I will suffer. We value saving our life just about over everything. It's a high premium for us. But friends, can I just tell you, there is freedom in picking up that cross. There, there is a distinct and definite freedom in trusting Jesus with your consequences. One who faced consequences for you. Does God not show himself trustworthy? Does he not show himself trustworthy? He vacated a grave that held a dead king. And by the power of his spirit, the firstborn of a new nation would come. That's what we see, a new king new life. The whole world thought that God was no longer trustworthy. The whole watching crowd thought Jesus is not trustworthy. He's dead. Friends, he was trustworthy. That means we can trust him. 
even with our hard decisions, even when we know that when we make that hard decisions, there will be fallout. There will be a heart brokenness attached to it. We can trust him. We could be free to land where John Newton landed a long time ago when he said, what you will, Lord, when you will, how you will. There's freedom there. There's freedom. You know, go ahead and stand with me because we're going to, I'm going to finish it up here. Now listen, there, a lot of you in here are making hard decisions right now, just difficult ones. And I know what that feels like. You have a hard time seeing around it. You have a hard time understanding what you should do. Either every decision looks like a bad one or everyone looks like a good one, and you just don't know which direction to go. I'm going to ask you which voices are loudest. Which voices are loudest to you right now? And do they agree with your flesh or do they agree with what you know God is telling you to do? Some of you, you have no voices speaking into your life because like Bon Jovi, you're determined to do it all alone. Your heart's an open highway. and I've got these hard decisions and it's no one's business but my own and I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. You know, that's where some of you are at. You have no voices in your life. But we, that's not a biblical ideal. That's, that is inconsistent with Christianity. You're attached to a body. You should bring good counselors in, specifically the ones that might affect the most. Talk to them. Some of you have no voices, and that is not wise. Some of you have wrong voices, and that is not wise either. It's not wise. If you have hard decisions, and you're asking people that have a bad worldview, maybe they don't love Jesus, maybe, maybe they're just weird with their theology, be careful. You know what I'm saying? Be careful. Some of you are facing hard consequences because you know what you're supposed to do. And regardless of the voices around you, you're struggling because you know as soon as you pull the trigger on that hard decision, the direction you know you were supposed to do it, you know there's going to be fallout. You know it's going to be hard. You know it could affect the rest of your life. Sure, it's right. Sure, the Lord's calling you to do it, but you're scared to death of the consequences. Be of good cheer. You have a king that totally understands. He totally understands, and he's not just of understanding. He's beautifully good to us, and he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. We are free to trust him and make hard decisions, even with a broken heart. He's beautiful to us. There's some of you here that you have unbroken hearts. Your heart's not broken. And I even feel like maybe for some of you, the Lord is talking to you and encouraging you, even leading you to surrender your heart to him, to surrender your heart to him. Maybe your heart's beginning to be broken. I don't know what that looks like for you, but you've tried. It's my life. And you know it's not working. You know it's not been working. We all know that. There is a better king. He's a better king than you are. His kingdom is better than your kingdom. His story is better than your melodrama. He's a beautiful king who is trustworthy and good. And I would encourage you this day to submit your life to him, to call him king in your life. You know, we're about to have a time of worship, and Wes is going to explain it all to us and what we do in that time and how we see it as a church. But I just want to pray for you before we start, okay? Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. 
For Father, you looked at consequences. You saw consequences and you greeted them. You didn't try to get around them. You didn't hedge or him or haw, but you tackled the consequences for our benefit at your loss. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Lord, that with a broken heart, you came to us. And here it is, Father, we find ourselves a people with you in view, with you being big and magnificent and glorious and huge, and yet we still have hard decisions. Some of them involve money. Some of them involve friendships. Some of them in, in, involve career changes. And Father, we just don't know what to do. But Father, that we would package people around us that would speak well to us, and then maybe even at times say, I hear you, but I hear the Lord louder. Father, that we would be a people that would see the consequences just like you, but greet them just as you did, laying our lives low by picking up our cross, not trying to save our life, but losing it for your glory and therein saving it. Father, you're so good to us. As we worship you, Father, we pray that you would lead us, all of our hearts being in different places, that you would lead us in how we are to respond. But Father, help our hearts respond. Some of us in here, we don't, we're not used to that. We don't know what it looks like to respond. Do we talk? Do we sing? Do we just think? We don't know what this time is supposed to look like. Father, I know there's no real answer to that. I know it's different for everybody, but that our hearts would respond. Whether our knee hits the ground or not, our, our hearts do hit the ground. We bow ourselves before you and we say, yes, Lord, do as you will. Father, you're so good to us and we love you. Thank you for being a noble, gentle king. And it's in your name we worship. Amen.